one day you guys will get old too and you'll work out that when the body starts to give way it's not as much fun as what it was when it's young like you guys are at the moment. So enjoy it while you can. Um, <laughs> today we're going to continue in our series in Mark, um, as Catherine read. And over the course of this series, the, the theme of the series has been, Who is Jesus? And so the point of this series, as we work through it, is looking at different aspects of Jesus' life and things that Jesus did and said and all the rest to gain clues as to the picture the Bible paints. And then in the last week, which is going to be at the end of the last Sunday in February, we're going to tie it all together and word of warning, there will be a challenge put out. I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'm not going to ruin all my surprises. But there's going to be a challenge at the end of it for us as followers of Christ as well as for those who might not be. And so that's what we're doing in this series. And today we're focusing on God's kingdom. What Jesus taught about God's kingdom. We've looked at what Jesus taught and Luke did that very well. But I want to zoom it in on God's kingdom. What did Jesus teach about God's kingdom? And the logic behind that is really quite a simple one. Because if Jesus is who Jesus says he is, i.e. God the Son in human form, then he's been in heaven for all of eternity and he's been a part of God's kingdom. He is a perfect reflection of God's kingdom, so Jesus should be able to teach us about God's kingdom. And so the challenge from today is to help us understand what Jesus teaches about God's kingdom so that we can live it out here now. God's kingdom and eternity and praising God and all the rest doesn't just start when we die. If you're a follower of Christ, then you already have eternal life. You're already part of God's kingdom. God calls us to live that kingdom out here on earth and give people a taste of that kingdom now, which is really a simple summary from one perspective on what Jesus' whole ministry was about, giving people a taste of God's kingdom here on earth, the healings, the teachings, everything was about giving people a taste of what God's kingdom, God's kingdom is actually about. So before we start, let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that you are the great and heavenly God, that this is your word, your Holy Spirit inspired these people, the authors to write it, and it's that same Holy Spirit that lives in us if we know you. And I pray that you'll open our hearts and our minds up to you, that your Holy Spirit will teach us and guide us and help us to know you better. In your Son's name. Amen. So, to start today, I'm not actually going to start at verse 35. And the reason being is underneath my rock hard exterior is not a complete heart of stone. But I wanted to start at verse 17 of chapter 10, but I felt really bad about getting someone up here to read 
like 50 verses between the Mark reading and the Luke reading. I thought that might be a bit much for someone. So I just kind of cut the reading down, but I actually always wanted to start at verse 17. And if you have turned to Mark in your Bibles, you'll quickly see that Mark chapter 10 verse 17 is the rich and the kingdom of God. That's the heading. And it's the rich ruler and um, he's referred to as the rich ruler. Some refer, uh, another one of the Gospels referred to him as the rich young ruler. Um, but it's the same story. And I want to look at that first before we, and just move through from there. And in the world today, and in the world back then, in society, the way things worked, there were three things. There were three things that the world considers a good sign of your worth. That generally speaking, society will decide, yes, you're a, that's a good thing. You're, you're worth a lot. And that's money slash toys. It's position in society. And it's also the amount of influence you have. And we see that around today. If, if you have a, a sir in front of your name or a, or a madame or whatever the female equivalent is, I'm not up on British autocracy. Dame. Dame, there we go. But either way, if, if you have a title in front of your name, then that gives you a certain standing in society. If you put the word doctor in front of your name, that gives you a certain standing in society. It's why academics get so annoyed when someone gets given an honorary doctorate and then try and claim they're a doctor of that topic. If you ever decide to get into academia, don't do that if you get given an honorary title. You quickly work out that you're not so popular. But titles um, therefore allude to your position in society and your influence in society. The world goes, that's three good indicators of your worth. And Jesus shoots them all down in this story. Now, you know the story, so hopefully you know it. And if you don't know it, go back this afternoon, have a read of it, Mark 10, starting at verse 17. But the rich man had money, he had influence, and he had position in society. And he comes running up to Jesus and he goes, good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? Now, everyone thinks that the prosperity gospel that we hear today is a new thing. It's a new fad. It's only really come along in the last 50, 60 years or so, the prosperity gospel. If you have lots, God wants to bless you and he wants to give you lots of money, and if you have lots of money, you're blessed by God, and your health, obviously, the healthier you are, the more you're blessed by God, and if you're not healthy, and you need to sit in a chair while you preach, then you're not blessed by God, you're cursed. And that's the prosperity gospel. And many people think it only started 50, 60 years ago, I can tell you, it had an Old Testament. Because everyone in the crowd, when this young when this rich man comes running up to Jesus and says, what must I do to have eternal life? Everyone knew who he was and everyone knew he was rich and influential. And everyone would have bet their houses that he was blessed by God. Everyone thought that if anyone's going to get into heaven, it's going to be this guy. 
This guy is blessed by God because he's got money, he's got influence, he's got position in society. Even the disciples, as we read through the story, thought this guy was a shoo-in for God's kingdom for eternity. And what does Jesus say to him? Pardon? He said, why do you call me good? But after that, what did Jesus give him as the criteria to get into heaven? Before that? You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honour your father and mother. Anyone knows anything about that? Good work. That's between you and God. That's what his answer was. Interesting. Two, two points on that, which I'd like to point out. Defraud. A lot of people go, oh, this has been edited because defraud isn't part of the commandments. The Ten Commandments in, in Exodus. Do not defraud. That's not part of the Ten. This has been edited. You can't trust this. No. I've got a funny feeling Jesus threw that in there because he knows rich people usually defraud, cheat and take away poor people's money. They use their position to become richer at other people's expense. Does that sound like something Jesus would teach? No. So I think that was a very pointed little comment at this guy because he was rich. Jesus didn't claim these are the Ten Commandments. He said these are the commandments. He didn't say these are the Ten Commandments only. Any, anyone knows anything else about those commandments before we move on to what Doug started to go down? And we'll get there. Bingo. Yep. They are related only to other people. Jesus has not mentioned God in those commandments. Interesting, isn't it? Why would he do that? Yeah. I've got a different phrase. It's called a setup with a dead fish. Jesus is setting him up because the young man's or the, the rich man's response was, I've kept all of them since I was young. I am great. I've ticked every box. And Jesus goes, ah, you've got one more thing. Sell everything you have, come follow me. In other words, Jesus is saying, where is your focus? Where is your priority? What is your God? What do you value most? Because just like the rich man, we today make decisions based on what's the higher priority. People will say, oh, I can't get here or I can't go there or I can't get to church or I can't go to that party or I can't go to this or I can't do that or I... He can. But there's something else that you're ranking as a higher priority. It might be a valid priority. It might not be. Not for me to say. But there's a higher priority. And that's what Jesus is pointing out to this rich man. You have a higher priority than God. 
It's your money. Get rid of your money. Come follow me. Then you will have eternal life. Make God your God. And the man goes away very disappointed. But if you keep reading, down at um, verse 26, the disciples were even more amazed than the crowd around them and said to each other, who then can be saved? In other words, the disciples thought this guy was a shoo-in for eternal life. They thought that he was just, he was there. They don't understand. They thought that wealth was an indicator of God's blessing. The prosperity gospel had an Old Testament. And so Jesus explains, you will get rewarded, but you're going to get rewarded in different ways to how you understand. It may not be exactly how you think in this life. It may not be in the shape that you think in this life. When I first became a Christian, me and my dad, which, whose relationship was already very strained, became even more strained to the point of virtually being broken. It was broken for many years until I got older and he learnt a lot. And it's amazing how much he learnt between when, from when I was 15 to when I was 30. Absolutely incredible how much he learnt in those 15 years. But for those years, it was a broke, I had a broken relationship with my father. So in a sense, you could say, by committing my life to Christ, I lost my father. And a lot of it was because of my belief in Jesus and God and the Bible and he hated every part of it. But by coming to church and joining a church and investing myself in the church and in God's family, I picked up 20 fathers. Because there were 20 men in that church who were willing to invest themselves into my life and be the father that I needed and the guidance and the model that I needed even though I had lost my blood father for a period of time. In time, Dad and I reconciled and things were okay. But for 15 years, God gave me 20 fathers to make up for that one father that I lost. And that's what Jesus is trying to explain here to the disciples. It's not going to be bags of gold that you get rewarded with. Nothing wrong with the gold itself, but where is your God? God will do what God knows is best for you. God knows you better than you know you. That's both scary and comforting. Very scary because I get scared by how much I know me. But it's comforting that he still loves me despite the fact he knows me. <laughs> and there's nothing I can say or do that's going to shock him. And so after Jesus goes on about that and tries to explain this to the disciples who still aren't getting it, you can see they're not getting it. Jesus predicts his death for a third time. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time on that, not because it's not important, but because a couple of weeks ago, Mark spent time on Jesus predicting his death. And he did a great job. So I'm not going to spend too much time on that other than to say just a couple of quick little things. 
This is the third time. He, in Mark records Jesus predicting his death three times, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. This is chapter 10, this is the third time. All equally graphic, all equally accurate. The other thing to note about this is the positioning of it. Jesus has just spoke about the kingdom of God requiring you and if you want to enter into the kingdom of God, the nature of the kingdom of God is putting God first. Right? If you want to be part of God's kingdom, you've got to put God first. You can't put yourself first. And then Jesus talks about, then Mark records Jesus talking about his own death. You go, okay, next conversation, whatever. (laughs) But it's not next conversation, whatever. Because then if we get to the passage we want to look at, chapter 10, verses 35 to 45, James and John, walking along, say, teacher, buddy, Power, mate. <laughs> we want you to do something for us. And Jesus is a little smarter than they want to give him credit for. And so he doesn't just write him a blank check. Yeah, yeah, sure, whatever, knock yourself out, we'll pick it up later. <laughs> what do you ask me for? They said, we want to sit at your left and your right hand when you come into glory. Now let's just understand what they're asking. Okay, In their context, let's understand what they're asking because this is really important. As we've said, and as it's seen as you read on in all four of the Gospels, until Jesus rises from the dead on Resurrection Sunday, they do not understand Jesus' mission. They don't get it. They don't understand it. They, They think... And when James and John come asking Jesus for their left and the right hand seats, they're thinking physical kingdom. They're thinking throw out the Romans and Israel becomes a sovereign nation again. Slaves to no one, setting up a kingdom of free people that lasts forever. That's what they're thinking. And so they're saying that when you come as king in that sovereign nation after we've thrown the Romans out, there's been lots of bloody battles, lots of people die, but after that and you come in your glory, we want to sit your left and your right hand. I.e. VIP number one, VIP number two. Other than the king himself, what they're asking for is the next most important person in the kingdom, and the second most important person in the kingdom other than the king himself. That's what they're asking for. It's a pretty big question, isn't it? Why would you ask that? Why would you ask that? Because you're thinking like the world. Money, position, influence. To be sitting at Jesus' right hand, let's just assume for a second, let's just play for a second with our minds and we go, okay, that was Jesus' plan, okay? Jesus' plan was to throw out the Romans, set up a physical kingdom sort of thing to get VIP number one, VIP number two. The people who get them, they're made. 
never have to fight another battle. They just get to sit on a chair, eat lots of food, drink lots of whatever they want to drink. I'm sure it's grape juice. And just tell everyone what to do, other than the king, obviously. They're looking to line their own pockets, make their own lives comfortable. They're looking at themselves and what suits me best, what makes me have a better life. All about me. And that's the attitude of the world, isn't it? It's all about me. There's a song by Toby Keith, all about me. Good song, actually, but not particularly relevant to today. But that's the way of the world. But it's also creeping into the church. Some would argue, who are a little blunter than I, that it's already crept into the church in a, in a way that is now almost unremovable. I don't hold that view. I think it can be removed, but it's going to be painful. But once you start to see this attitude, it becomes unmissable. At the moment, the last five, ten years, whatever you want to call it, everyone have their own opinion on when, when this started, the church has been getting pushed from the centre of society out towards the margins more and more. You will have seen it. And in that time, there's been two basic types of Christians. The ones who go, oh, we're going to the margins. Okay, let's go to the margins. They're the small minority. The majority of people get really annoyed and frustrated and angry and hurt by the fact the church is getting pushed out of the centre and they're fighting to try to get it back to the centre because that's where they have influence. That's where they have comfort. That's where it's accepted. That's where there's no persecution. If you're making the rules, you're not going to make a rule. Slap a Christian day. Are you? The centre of society is where it's comfortable and easy. That's influential. That's where the church was for about, uh, do some quick maths, about 1,600 years. It's called Christendom. From when Constantine became a Christian in about 320, give or take a year, and became a Christian, and Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire right up until about 1960 or so, roughly. Christendom, is that's called Christendom, where the church ruled the state. And about 1960, 1970, I'm sure academics will argue about it, the church started to get pushed from the centre. We don't want the church as the most influential power in our society. And a lot, a lot of people don't like that because they're losing their influence, they're losing their comfort. But as Christians, should we be so upset? To be honest with you, I think the, Christian, I think the church should be racing towards the margins because out of the margins, as society turns to putty, it's not going to be the Christians they blame for a start. And secondly, you're at the edge of society where Jesus' message of love, forgiveness, hope, grace and truth are all the more listened to. Always has been. Just read the New Testament. Read James. <laughs> Why do you treat the rich differently to the poor? Why do you give the rich person a seat and make the poor person sit on the floor? Is it not the rich who are hanging you? 
who are persecuting you. James wasn't known for his subtlety. But it's no different today. (laughs) The church is falling into the same trap. There's nothing new. It's just we're on cycles. It's happening again. Another way the the churches are, are falling into the trap of thinking like the world rather than thinking like God's ki- wants us to think and therefore thinking like the kingdom. Another trap the church often falls into is church health. How healthy do we see the church? What measurements, more to the point, do we use to measure church health? How do we determine if a church is healthy or not? And usually it's the ABC. You listen to conversations from people from different churches, even pastors do it a lot of the time. ABC of church health. Attendance, buildings and cash. How many people come to your church? How big is your building? What sort of states are you building in? How, many, how much money you got in your account? How many people can you afford to employ? ABC of church health. So many people use that as their criteria as to whether a church is healthy. But let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Is it good? Would you say the church is healthy if next Sunday... 15 new people walk through that door, okay? 15 brand new people, never been in this building before, walk through the door. They go, we want to come to church here. Great, welcome. Grab a seat. Make sure you laugh at the right places, you know. And then you find out Sunday afternoon that the Prezi Church had closed on Thursday and there were 50 going there. Is that good church growth? when the 50 that were going to the Prezi Church aren't going to the Prezi Church and only 15 came here. Where are the other 35? That's not kingdom growth. That's not kingdom mentality. Let me put, give you another one. We look at the bank accounts and we go, the bank accounts, are they good, are they bad, are they what? But why are the bank accounts good? Are they good because of weekly tithing? Or are they good because someone passed away and left $100,000. One's kingdom mentality, one's comfort mentality. I'm sure you get the picture I'm painting. And the church is very prone to this sort of thinking. But there's a better way to think about it. There's a better way to look at church health. And that's the DEF, Discipleship, Evangelism, Fruit of the Spirit. If a church is discipling well, if a church is evangelising in ways that communicates God's love to their community in ways that the community understand as love while honouring God, if the people in the church are growing fruit of the Spirit in increasing numbers as they mature in Christ, that's a healthy church. So if we move on, we understand that the church is very prone to thinking just like the world, not thinking like 
the way Jesus wants us to think if we're to honestly reflect God's kingdom. So then Jesus says to them, after saying, you don't know what you're asking, and they didn't, he says, you will suffer. And James, the James that we're speaking about here, what did suffer? He was the first of the 12 apostles martyred. James, who wrote the book of James, is the James, Jesus' half-brother, different James. It's that James who is spoken about in Acts 15 as the leader of the church in Jerusalem. It's not this James. This James died too early, was martyred for his faith. So two different Jameses can be confusing. But having seen about all that and seen what Jesus is directing how we think and warning us against loving the world and showing us what he thinks about the way the world thinks, it may seem a very long introduction, but what does Jesus teach about how the kingdom actually looks? Oh, A, put God first, yes. But let's, let's see how he does this. When the other ten disciples heard about what James and John had asked Jesus, they became indignant, they became annoyed, they became disgusted with the ten. Now, they didn't become disgusted with the ten because they're going, how unholy of you. We'll, do, we'll talk about it in heaven. The other ten are thinking the same thing John and James are. There's going to be a bloodbath. We're going to throw out the Romans. We're going to set up a physical kingdom. But we haven't done that yet. We haven't swung a sword yet. So how can you deem yourself to be the most important person in the kingdom and the second most important person in the kingdom when you haven't even swung a sword yet. You haven't even taken off a Roman centurion's ear. <laughs> How can you consider yourself VIP number one and number two? That's why they're indignant, because they want the spots. And they figured the bloodbath was coming where they overthrow the Romans, kick the Romans out, and that's where they will prove themselves to be worthy of those seats. So they're annoyed for extremely unhelpful reasons when it comes to the, what Jesus has already spent a great deal of time trying to explain and teach them. Because by this point, theologians believe that Jesus is starting on his journey to Jerusalem for the final time. Okay? So at this point, he's probably been with the disciples over three years Three years, and they're still squabbling about this. There's a scene in a TV show, and I wish I could remember which one it is, where you've got two boys, and they're eight or nine years old, or whatever, and they've been hauled before their mum because they've been arguing and fighting and all the rest, and the mother has a ruler. And she's trying to get them to be quiet and listen and behave themselves. And they start nitpicking at each other again. They start arguing again. 
And the teacher, and the, 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 the mother goes, whack, on one of them. So the other one smiles, whack. The other one smiles, whack. And it ends with just whack, 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 whack. And you ever feel like Jesus at this point would kind of want to line the 12 up just next to each other and just start at one end and go whack, 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 whack. Because that's really how silly they're being. Jesus has just predicted his own death again for the third time. They're, the only bloodbath that's going to happen is going to be mine. And they're still squabbling about when we throw the Romans out, can we sit on your left and your right? But Jesus calls them together and says, you should be serving others. The greatest in the kingdom will be the lowest, the one who serves the most. That's who will be greatest in the kingdom, in God's kingdom. Which is why we read Luke. Luke chapter 6, verses 27, 36. I like this passage because it's rather blunt. It doesn't leave a lot for me to have to try figure out. Let's read it again because it is very, very simple if we want it to be. Luke 6, 27. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other two. Note, it says turn the other cheek. In other words, they slap you on the right, give them the opportunity to slap them on the left. It does not say deck them so hard they hit the ground and make a dent. It says love them. Oh, I decked him with love. No. Love. Love your enemies. And he goes on by pointing out that even the world's worst sinner, even the one who says God doesn't even exist, will still love his friends. Those who love him, he will love. He will still give money to his friends knowing that he'll get paid back. Even banks. Would you call a bank? The Commonwealth Bank, the National Bank, the Westpac Bank, we don't want to discriminate against one bank. Any of the banks, do they just say, look, Here's $400,000. Go buy a house for yourself. Don't worry about repaying us. We'll be right. We made $7.8 billion profit last year. We can afford $400,000. Don't repay us. No. They expect repayment. So what different are we if we love our friends but don't act with love to those who hate us? How is that any different to anyone else in the world. That's the characteristics of the kingdom. That's what we've been getting to. We've looked at the fact that Jesus talks to the rich man first and that's why I wanted to cover this whole section today. Jesus first talks to the rich man. The rich man's going, I'm a dead set certainty for this. Put your house on it. And Jesus goes, not a hope, because your love is money, not God. And if you want to be part of God's kingdom, then you need to love God the most. 
Jesus then talks about him dying, sacrificing himself, shedding his blood. Why? Because he is serving who? Himself? No. He's doing it for us. That's God's kingdom. Serving others in love. Putting God first, others second, ourselves last. You do it in that order, you're going to be on a good track. Too often we go, me, then a big gap, others, and then God, or you might switch God and others around, whatever. But it's too often we go, me first, and everything else a distant second. Whereas God, Jesus is saying, God first, others second, then you a distant third. Now, years ago when I was at school, and I'm sure there's theological problems with this, but I still like the analogy after all these years. And there are theological problems with it, but we don't have time to work them all out. But the basic picture it creates, I like. A man goes, gets one wish from Gabriel or something, whatever angel was bored that day. He says, I'd like to see heaven and hell. And so the angel takes him to hell and you've got this big long table, lots of food, full of just mountains of food and everyone's sitting around it and everyone's dead set miserable, absolutely miserable. And he looks closer and he sees that their arms from their wrists to their shoulders have metal bars on them. They can't bend at the elbow. And everyone in the joint's miserable, starving, looking pale, shriveled, awful, food untouched. Most delicious food you ever want to have. Yeah, so that's that's awful. Yeah, so let's look at heaven. Gets to heaven, sees the same setup, same table, food, mountains of it, glorious food, and everyone's laughing and cheering and carrying on. And he looks at them, and they too have metal bars on their arms from wrist to shoulder, and. But they're all laughing, they're well fed, they're nourished, having a ball of a time. And he turns to the angel and he goes, I don't get it. What's, what's the difference? And the angel says, watch. And he stands there for a minute. And in hell, everyone couldn't get the food to their mouth. But in heaven, as he watched, this person would feed the two people next to him. And the next person will feed the two people next to them. And so everyone ate more than they could eat because they were thinking of others, not themselves. And it's the same with us. It's the same in our family as I encourage people to pray for other people, to call other people, to check on other people. Just call them. And not just the ones you love. Even sinners do that. Call the ones you can't stand. So this week my phone's going to be ringing off the hook. (laughs) But call everyone in your church family, whether you like them or not, whether they're old, whether they're young, whether they're good looking, whether they think... Say hello to them. Chat. Ain't these for your three-minute phone call. But this is your church family. Show love. Share, 
God first, others second, you third. So what's the message from today? What's the, what's the challenge? What's the challenge from today? And I'm going to ask a question, but before I do, I want to take a quick little poll. Who's got a soft ego or easily offended? Hands up. So, you got a... Are you easily offended? Does your ego get hurt pretty simply? Well, for those of you who didn't put your hand up, you're liars. Because everyone has a blind spot when it comes to themselves. And everyone's ego is a little bit soft when it comes time to be brutally honest. But I'm going to ask you to be brutally honest and say you're going to need to put your egos aside. Egos to the side, it's time for some brutal honesty with yourself and with God. It doesn't have to be with any, it can be with someone else if you want to talk with someone else or through it. But it doesn't have to be with someone else. It can be just with yourself and God. And the question I want you to ask yourself is this. Why did you decide what you decided? Why did you buy what you bought? Why did you say what you said? Why did you think what you thought? Why did you speak the way you spoke? Why did you act the way you acted towards that person but you didn't act that way to that person? Why did you decide what you did? What was the basis for it? Was the basis for it to honour God, to give people a taste of God's kingdom here on earth, which is what we're actually called to do? Or was it to make my life that little bit more comfortable? And that applies for the last week, the last month, the last year, for the big decisions, for the little decisions, for every decision. Why did I decide what I decided? And that's why I said, if you've got a soft ego, and there's only a few honest people in the room put their hand up, well done. But everyone needs to put aside your ego and actually ask the hard questions. Because if we're to reflect Christ, if we're to follow Christ, if we're to shine, give people in Wingham and Taree and the Manning Valley and wherever else a taste of God's kingdom now, you ready for this? We need to act, think, speak, listen, love like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your kingdom is a certainty. Not because of anything we can or don't do. It's not reliant on us. It's reliant on you. It's reliant on what Jesus did on the cross. You have everything under your control and we are but your servants. And we ask that you help us shape us, mould us. We know that's not always going to be fun by our definition of fun, but our highest priority should be you at all times. And I pray to you that it will be in your son's name. Amen.